Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jim Glassman joins us. We were both off on Friday uh, for Jobs Day. Thank you. Perhaps we were both at the Super Bowl, Tom. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> let, let me uh, let me just it. get your sense of, of of what we saw in those numbers on on Friday. How you reacted to the headline number, and I know you've dug into them uh, the numbers since. You know, I'm, I'm I'm more interested in the in the employment picture because uh, wage trends, which got everybody threw everybody off, were are very volatile. So this month they're very soft, but. Uh, the, the fact when you're seeing steady job growth month after month, here we are eight years in recovery and we're still seeing this. It tells you we still have a lot of momentum. You would think that if we're getting close to full employment, th- these trends are going to start slowing down. And just it's a reminder that we still have a lot of people out there uh, looking for jobs. And it makes me feel like we're not yet up to our full potential. To, so that means to me there's more good news to come. So I, I was more focused on that. Now, the, the other thing that's really interesting in the background, what you see. Uh, going on is as the job market is doing better, there's more opportunities opening up. And what's happening is people, particularly in the 25 to 35 year bracket, uh, the participation rate's coming back. So a lot of these guys dropped out during the recession. Maybe they had support from family. But with the job market doing better, there's a more compelling reason to come back in and look for a job. And I think that's that's a healthy sign that this hidden unemployment that's been going on is really we're, we're addressing it and we're seeing lots of signs of this. So I, I take more I take comfort in the trends that we see in the employment numbers. And the, the, but by the way, the other thing that's interesting in this, for the last couple of years, we've been dealing with the the oil sector has been going through some major cutbacks. And you're seeing it showing up in mining and utilities and manufacturing and CapEx spending down. Well, uh, it looks to me like we're mostly working, got through that, because now you're starting to see job growth in mining, in manufacturing and construction. So for so th- these are the three areas that have been kind of soft. And this report showed maybe the beginning of some return to something more normal. You mentioned the volatility of those those wage trends. If you take a step back, what are we seeing in terms of wage growth from a, from a broader perspective? Well, these numbers show sort of the wage growth has shifted up from 2% annual growth forever yeah. to about 2.5%. We're still doing a little better than inflation, but frankly, uh, we would I would expect this is going to do a little better. It looked to me like we were heading our way toward 3% growth, which would be quite decent yeah. given where inflation is. And it may be that we're there. And the thing that surprised everybody is there were a bunch of states that implemented minimum wages, uh, minimum wage hikes in January. That didn't show up. So I think you don't really know what's going on here until you see a couple months behind you because these numbers are so volatile. They swing around a lot. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if by spring you see the trend is back to where we were thinking before, two and a half heading toward 3%. I want to ask you about retraining. I was looking at your most recent note, and you wrote there were 5.5 million unfilled job openings today compared with 3.5 to 4 million job openings the last time unemployment stood at the current level, uh, implying that yeah. quite a few new jobs could be created by retraining folks. Yeah. Are people taking that more seriously? Yeah, you, you see, see it. movement toward them. You see it in action. Uh, businesses, 
talk about this a lot. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for a small business to train people because what happens is you train them and then they jump. You can't you can't be sure they're going to stay at your job. So where I see it is more in the community college uh-huh. system. That's where go to Miami Dade Community College. It's massive system. They've got a lot of specialized skill programs that tons of kids are going into. And I think I think it's just a matter of time before people figure out that where the opportunities are. You just can't turn yourself into a, a technician overnight. It takes time, and you've got to get some skills that we used to get in shop class, or mm. you got to have some interest in math. So I, I think it just takes time. And my guess is we won't be talking about this five years from now. But that, that's why to us economists, this is music to our ears, because when we hear people complaining about they can't find people, that tells me there's opportunities there. And it's not going to be long before someone does, figures it out. It does strike me as a successful public-private partnership when you look at the, yeah. the way the companies are working with these community yeah. colleges. Yeah, you know, what? The, the thing is, what used to happen is uh, your union used to have a, union, a, a shop that would set, or set these up. Well, we don't, a lot of people don't work in unions anymore, particularly yeah. manufacturing. Yeah. So we don't, we're missing an institution that really used to do this. Jim, do you just presume a stronger dollar? No, I I don't think it makes uh, – I, I think the reason we've seen the dollar stronger in the last couple of years is because the Fed stopped doing quantitative easing and the Europeans and the Japanese stepped in and, and just emulated what the Fed was doing. So I don't think it's obvious that the U.S. dollar should be stronger. The dollar is kind of on a trade-weighted basis about where it's been on average over the last 40 years. So to, to me, unless the U.S. is able to sort of fundamentally change the amount of energy in the economy and generates all this new optimism about productivity or something that's unique to the U.S. and not others, I don't think there's a reason to expect the dollar to keep going up. And particularly now that we're seeing more of signs, maybe not in Greece, but in Europe, European and Japanese economies are doing a little better. So central banks are getting a little more. You get the sense that people are thinking more about maybe slowing down the asset purchases. And that's what the Europeans are doing starting in March. So that to me, that prospect is what kind of limits the upside for the dollar. At trade balance data here at 830. And uh, you've, you've written about trade deficits, how we should regard trade deficits, saying uh, should seem as a pay-it-forward story. I think so. Explain trade that. Deficit. I think that's fascinating. Okay, so here, here is the, here's the U.S. We are among the richest of the economies in the world, right? Uh, America is already great, and, and so is Europe and in, in terms of living standard. Much of the world is very poor. So to me, trade deficits symbolize an effort on our part. It, it allows con- companies that are countries that are allowed to access our consumer markets means they can sell to us, means they can they can generate their own economic development. And so trade deficits are a sign that the world is all out of balance. They're, we're trading with people who are poor, but as they do better, they're going to be buying more of our stuff. And so to me, a trade deficit is a temporary dislocation that is, uh, is, is a reflection of a world that's out of sync. It's not a reflection of countries manipulating their currency to take advantage of the U.S. It's a, it's a sign of countries waking up. And, you know, if you're, if you're Bangladesh or India or China, your living standard is 10 to 20 percent of the U.S. level, you're not going to be buying the same things that we're buying from them. So to, to me, this is a stepping stone to a world where we're all going to be doing better. And we benefit from that process because as, these, as Asia in particular continue to develop, there's vast new consumer markets that are going to be developing. And our, our businesses are going to be benefiting from that. Americans, American jobs are going to be created by that. 
Is this conversation too colored by politics? In other words, do we focus too much on China and Mexico because of the debate over the border or uh, about uh, who is who is wielding a heavier hand in, in the Asia-Pacific region, for instance? You know, I, I can understand the focus on China and Mexico because that's where the that's the most dynamic. That, those those yeah. are where the biggest changes have taken place, right? And China is big, but uh, it really is a mistake to think that China and Mexico are stealing our jobs. China and Mexico, as they develop, are creating jobs for us. We don't see them every day. Honestly, in my company, I don't know how much of J.P. Morgan's revenues are being generated by economic, the economic pie growing, but I know it's true. And I, and I know that I'm you know, benefiting from what's going on around the world. Jim Glassman with us. He's an economist for commercial banking at J.P. Uh, Morgan. Jim Glassman, you had a great phrase earlier this morning, bogged down. <laughs> well, you're bogged down by distractions, whether it's Mr. Putin or the New England Patriots. We are bogged down. How do we get out of this boggedness? Uh, it's lovely to be bogged down by the Patriots, but the <laughs> problem is we're... Yeah, it's just it's distracting from the issue that has been helping the market, which is focusing on economic initiatives to get the economy moving. Regulation, tax reform, infrastructure spending, that's coming. We know that's percolating in the background, but I think all this other stuff is really kind of worrying people that maybe if we're not careful, that can start fragmenting the team that's trying to put this together. So it's, you know, the market... The market's holding on to the hope because we have not really seen where they're going to go on some of these things. And it doesn't have to happen tomorrow. But as long as we see that there there's reform coming, there are actions. And we know it takes time to get a tax reform put in place. But as long as um, it looks like we're moving in that direction, the you know it doesn't disrupt the market. And I think the benefits from that are sort of already been monetized. We, we've already seen the market move up a lot. And the benefits of the higher stock markets created a couple trillion dollars of wealth. So that's going to be affecting consumer spending. But, it, but, but it's true. We, we really need to get we, – we were hoping that the debate gets refocused on the economic issues and we get away from some of these other things that are distracting. How much do you pay attention to, to readings of sentiment when you're looking at uh, CapEx, when you're looking at uh, inventory investment? What does sentiment tell us about that? You know, normally, like consumer sentiment, I never really pay much attention to because you can't spend sentiment. You have to spend, you have to get money to, you, have to, you know. And the thing is, we're seeing car sales off the charts. So that tells you that the consumer is feeling pretty good about things. I think in, in the business area, sentiment does matter a lot because there's a lot of activity businesses do. Business investment, for example, in CapEx, that requires that you have some confidence in the future. So sentiment can sometimes tell you if there's a, mind, a change in the mindset. And, you know, if a business has to, has to put in place a project that requires confidence that things are going to be better in the future, business sentiment can tell you something about what's going on. And we, and we are seeing an improvement in CapEx surveys, for example. That's probably more about sentiment than it is about real plans. That's what, that's, that's what we're going to have to sort of watch to see whether, in fact, we do get follow-up on some of this improvement that we've seen in the sentiment numbers. When you look at we've talked about energy and, and energy in the labor market, how big of a driver is the energy sector right now? When you look at the U.S. economy, how important is it to get it back online, perhaps to where it was? Well, it was a big deal because, you know, as of 2014, employment was growing about 250,000 a month. It just kind of slowed down quite significantly to under 200,000. 
as that industry was going through its cutback. So I don't know that, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal for the U.S. economy. Yeah. We still use more energy than we produce, but it's a real big deal for the economy. And uh, it's hard to tell all the all the impact is sort of indirect. I mean, it affects transportation, yep. CapEx, oil servicing, and there's a lot of jobs right. that spin out of this. And now, folks, it's 72307 on a Tuesday morning. We begin a discussion that Jim Glassman and I have done a few times, tax reform. Greg Vallier this morning in his travels says tax reform is front and center and even goes to the idea, Jim Glassman, of backdating, when we backdate back to the advantages of tax reform. Do you and does J.P. Morgan and your team, do you, do you actually feel we'll see tax reform? We do because this seems to, this is a, an important part of the program, and it seems to be supported by folks in the Senate and the House and the President. So, it would be. I mean, we do we do have issues because our companies are not competitive on the global land, landscape. So we know that our corporate tax rate, the thirty five percent rate, is putting companies at a disadvantage compared to others. We would like to see the tax code shift more to a consumption-based tax, and that's part of what's going on. Oh here. yeah, come on. We were, you you know, we were children when we were talking about yeah, tax no, we, for America. Yeah, we were. We were at one time they were trying to turn the tax code into right. an consumption-based income tax code. Well, yeah. diminishing. Now there was some bipartisan effort to do that, but I, I, I think it's I think it's reasonable to assume we're going to get some measure of tax reform here because it's an important okay. part of the program. Jim Glassman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with J.P. Morgan. What a perfect time to talk to Orville Shell David. Why don't you bring in... Mr. Shell. Yeah, absolutely. Few Americans know China as well as our next guest, have as much experience focusing on the country. Orville Shell, co-author of Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, editor of the China Reader, and many other books. Now he is co-chair of a task force uh, the Asia Society convened to look at U.S.-China relations. They're out with a new report just this morning. He's former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, now the Arthur Ross Director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. And Orville Shell joins us now from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. And why don't we start just by talking about uh, the relationship, the U.S.-China relationship that this president uh, inherited. What does it look like? Well, I think he inherited uh, one of the most important relationships in the world between two countries, but one that was increasingly out of balance. Uh, I think China has been pressing in myriad ways uh, in the South China Sea, East China Sea, has been somewhat of a laggard in terms of pitching in to uh, help uh, constrict North Korea and, and keep them from gaining nuclear weapons. Uh, I think you see increasingly uh, uh, repressive uh, environment within China itself, uh, very level, unlevel playing field in terms of trade and investment within China itself. So I think Trump comes in at a time when already the sort of Chinese side of the equation was out of balance, and uh, now he has, in effect, uh, thrown the puzzle on the floor on the American side as well. So we have a very curious situation where there are very few constants, and everything is in up for grabs in, in the process of being uh, kind of reinvented, if you will. We've seen North Korea uh, amp up its, its testing uh, regime testing more uh, ballistic weapons. Uh, and one of the things that this report concludes is there needs to be more engagement between the U.S. and China on that issue. When you look at President Xi, does he strike you as someone who is willing to engage, wants to engage more with the U.S. at this point? 
I think that uh, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping has been quite distrustful uh, of the United States, suspecting that deep down inside the agenda is regime change, because after all, they have a sort of a retrograde Leninist government. Uh, we have values differences, political system differences. On the other hand, I think President Xi is a realistic man. Uh, he knows that in this globalized world, he has to get along uh, with the major players, and the U.S. is one of them. Uh, in Korea, uh, we have a curious situation because we do actually share a very common interest with China. Neither country, U.S. or China, wants to see Kim Jong-un uh, with nuclear weapons and, and uh, you know, long-range uh, ballistic missiles. So the question is, is there any possibility uh, with Trump, the negotiator par excellence, of him coming to some sort of a deal with Xi on uh, Korea, where China agrees, yes, we'll cooperate with the U.S., we'll forge a better relationship, and we'll squeeze North Korea off. We'll shut off the oil pipeline, we'll close down the trading companies, we'll stop the banking that, that enables <clears throat> North Korea to continue. Yeah. Within the zero-sum architecture and the certitude, which is very anti-Orville Shell, but within the certitude of our new administration, Everyone vaults back to game theory. I think of Vinod Agarwal at Berkeley is someone who's really looked at the game theory of trade and diplomacy. What will be the game theoretic response of China to the possible actions of our new administration? Well, that's a very good question. I think, uh, you know, I'm here in Washington now. We've been uh, talking with White House people, the Senate, Defense Department, State Department. As you go around, you find that nobody has an answer to that question. And uh, this is sort of Trumpian uh, strategy uh, at its sort of highest state of evolution. Now, its virtue is, of course, uh, it does throw everyone off balance. It also throws the Chinese a little off balance. It puts them on notice that things are going to be different. So that's not in itself a bad thing. But, um, you know, at some point, you have to begin putting the thing, the puzzle back together. You have to have some new strategy to replace whatever it is that you've taken okay. off the table. David, can I mention, and I, 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 Professor, I can't believe I'm saying this. Forty years ago next year, you weren't cool unless you had in the People's Republic Orville Shell paperback. <laughs> David, you had to be too cool for school if you didn't own a copy of that. That was Great, 40, gracious of you. 39 years ago. 39 years. I mean, you had to have it to pick up girls. That's all there was to it. <laughs> Professor Shell, let me ask you. Let me ask you about who the point person should be on U.S. China relations. It, there, was a, there was a lot made of Terry Branson being picked to be the ambassador to China. In actual fact, how much power does the ambassador to China have? In other words, is, is it the State Department who should be pushing for these relations to improve? Is it the Treasury Department? Where does, that, where does that come from? Well, I think the ambassador actually has very little power. And in the present scheme of things in China, uh, our ambassadors lately have been completely shut out. They can't even see a vice minister. Whereas the Chinese ambassador here is feted at the highest levels, even gets into the White House to see the president. So here, too, we are way out of balance. I think that, you know, uh, the president obviously has to set the tone. But I think in this administration, it may well be that he sort of remands 
more than day-to-day -day, uh, exercise of policy mm -hmm. to his cabinet secretaries, as we've seen with Mattis, just got back from Korea, Japan, uh, and the president did kind of defer to him. Now, Tillerson is a smart, uh, able man. Uh, he's got to get his sea legs and find out w just exactly, you know, where he's standing. But it's possible that he will be uh, uh, more and more in charge. And then we have people like in the White House, Peter Navarro, uh, who is an economist and who's uh, staked his, um, you know, his, his future in the White House on trade. This is a very delicate question. And uh, he is, um, I would say, quite neuralgic about China. Well, Not you're, you're being gracious. If you were to write in the People's Republican Americans' firsthand view of China, if you were to rewrite it today, Orville Schell, how would you rewrite it to explain to the Trump administration that it's not a zero-sum America, it's not a zero-sum system, and in some way we need to work with China? How do you write that today? Well, that's the paradox. We absolutely have to work with China. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to meddle with the one China policy. Uh, you know, if you do that, you tear the whole edifice down. On the other hand, it's also undeniably true that things need to change. Uh, the, China has become much more assertive, aggressive, uh, uh, much less flexible. And, you know, we cannot solve problems like nuclear proliferation, pandemics, climate change uh, with China as a partner if they have such a, a, a rigid posture. So this is the real question. Can we find some new grounds of, of collective action? Or are the rather more negative retrograde uh, 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 tensions going to prevail? Do you foresee that we can have a conversation about trade with China without the bellicose rhetoric? It seems like it's so imbued with that. It's been so imbued with that. Uh, is there a chance we can put that aside? I think it's possible, actually. But the U.S. is going to have to arch its back, as it did, for instance, on cyber hacking, where the, uh, you know, the uh, Minister of Public Security came over here in a few days' notice because he knew there was trouble, and he knew that his uh, president's visit to Washington would be a failure if he didn't do it. And they worked something out. I think when the United States makes it indelibly clear to China, that's enough this can't go on, and there will be consequences. There's a price to pay if we don't work this out. Then sometimes they come around. Yeah, Orville Schell with us. He is co-chair of the task force on U.S.-China relations. The Asia Society has assembled. They're out with a new report today. U.S. policy toward China recommendations for a new administration. Orville Schell, the Arthur Ross director of the Center on U.S.-China relations at, Age, at the Asia Society. And Orville, let me ask you about the history here. You, you, you've written more than 15 uh, books on China, the history is so important. Are you are you worried about how cognizant this new administration is of the history of this relationship? Well, it, it's an incredibly important element in the U.S.-China relationship because uh, there's such tremendous sensitivities in the whole Chinese narrative about uh, you know China having been occupied by Japan, the Opium Wars, the the history of the West sort of predatory uh, uh, postures towards China, and this this I think f fuels its the, the deep desire that's expressed in the most uh, obvious ways by President Xi uh, of China to become great again. In other words, to undergo a rejuvenation, and that's part of what I think is driving its push in the South China Sea, the East. 
East China Sea, its sort of Silk Road uh, policies of trying to uh, extend these routes maritime and overland to Europe. So China is really on the march, an effort to regain its old sort of historical uh, ascendant power, not only within Asia but the world. Now let me ask you to play that out a little bit more. You've called uh, President Xi a realistic uh, man. What, what is his vision of China's role in the world? I think his is the first step is he, China should be preeminent in Asia. And this is why the Seventh Fleet and uh, America's sort of 20th century uh, presence uh, as the predominant sort of power in Asia, at least uh, maritime power, is uh, not not acceptable. And that's why we see it claiming that the, the entire South China Sea and the so-called nine-dash line that goes all almost down to Indonesia. So, you know, it, 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 it wants to rearrange the furniture of Asia in terms of who is in charge, who is calling the shots. And uh, in this sense, too, it's very historically redolent that it wants the surrounding powers, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, that once were tribute-bearing subsidiary nations to again be in a a subsidiary uh, role to China the leader. Let me ask you about a, a watchword or a watch phrase, something we hear time and time again. That's civil society. And one of your recommendations here has to do with civil society. Uh, saying that there are policies in place that harm U.S. organizations, companies, individuals, and the broader uh, relationship, and and the U.S. should respond to that. Haven't we been doing that? I I think back on the last strategic and economic dialogue, there was a whole component part uh, on how, how these organizations can act independently in China. How does that change? How does that conversation begin to change? You know, I think that as relations get more tense uh, on a state-to-state level between our governments, it becomes ever more imperative that we have a functional sort of second set of muscles, namely in civil society, Uh, NGOs, cultural exchange, you know, music, uh, education. And I would also say here the media is an incredibly important role. And the, the playing field when it comes to the media is completely out of balance. China has... Any reporter from China can come in from the New China News Agency, the People's Daily. There's CCTV television channels playing in the U.S. and Chinese and English, radio networks. None of these things are possible for Americans in China. So this is another area where if we're going to have a healthy relationship, we need to recalibrate. Did you ever meet Mao? I never did. You, You say Mr. Trump reminds you of Mao. Yeah. Discuss. That's quite a statement. Well, even uh, from Orville Schell. Mao and Trump are both populists. They're both, I think, quite anti-elitist. They both are dedicated to sort of turning over the order such as it is. They both imagine themselves to be representing kind of uh, people who've lost their voice, uh, who are uh, looked down upon, who feel disesteemed, disrespected. Uh, I think, you know, Mao Zedong had an expression that you can't, uh, no construction can happen without destruction. And I think that's very similar to sort of Donald Trump's notion that there's... they both grew up wealthy, right? Well, Mao grew up, he was sort of a, 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 not a poor, not a poor peasant family, but a peasant family. So he had a very different kind of rural upbringing. But interestingly, he had tremendous issues, as as we may say, with his father uh, and became very anti-authoritarian, which was, I think, fed into his penchant for making revolution. And I think there was some of that in Donald Trump's uh, family history as well. Last question here is just about business. 
a lot of people in business say the biggest issue in China is cybersecurity. Just the last 30 seconds we have here, what do you recommend change with regard to cybersecurity in China? Well, uh, there's a lot of hacking, not just of uh, government uh, networks uh, by the Chinese, but also theft of intellectual property and cyber hacking into, into corporate accounts. And uh, this is, uh, you know, not something that the U.S. accepts. And I think actually, as we said earlier, this is one of the areas where the U.S. and China did actually come to an, uh, an agreement mm -hmm. that was reasonably effective. Well, thank you so much. Orville Show with the Asia Society with an important uh, new uh, task force on China. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. One of our favorite guests, Phil Verliger, who's been very cautious about an oil price uh, recovery for decades of study out of MIT a few years ago, studying oil as well. Phil, do you still maintain a cautious view of the certitude that oil will recover? Very cautious. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, Tom. Uh, it's What has happened is the open interest in futures has surged. It's up over 11% since the election. And uh, globally, we have something like 5.3 million barrels on the uh, NYMEX, uh, the ICE, and the International Petroleum Exchange. And it's, uh, we could be at 8 million barrels by the end of the year. Uh, that's 8 billion barrels. If you look at the composition, there's a huge surge on the buying side from speculators. Mm -hmm. They're betting on OPEC. Refiners have been big buyers, uh, and uh, there's, uh, producers are using this as an opportunity to sell. And what this is doing is setting up a bubble. Uh, now, maybe the bubble doesn't pop, but uh, uh, based on this, you've got first OPEC, which is uncertain. But secondly, you have the what I'll call the Trump put, like the Greenspan put. And what we're what we have is a situation where, one way or another, U.S. producers are pretty well guaranteed of uh, high prices. The free market that Ronald Reagan opened on January 28, 1981, closed January 20th of this year. Uh, if prices start to fall, we know some sort of protectionist measure will be taken. It could be the right. tax, well, or it could be – go ahead. Yeah, I want to rip up the script here, folks. One of the most important moments in Bloomberg on the economy years ago was Dr. Verligo talking about NAFTA. And, and, Phil, what people don't know within your cottage industry of oil is you have real tangible firsthand experience with NAFTA and the analysis of this border tax. Let, I know David wants to jump in here. Let me ask you one simple question. Has NAFTA been as lousy of a deal as the president makes it? No. NAFTA has been a very good deal for consumers. It's been a terrible deal for uh, many of the people who work in the auto industry and other industries because of all the, the jobs that have moved south. Now, many of those jobs would have been lost anyway. But the arguments in favor of trade agreements have always been that the consumer benefits, lower prices. Uh, the downside has always been that uh, jobs get lost and that they're supposed to be job retraining. My criticism has been that we we we're happy with the consumer benefits, and we didn't do enough for the people in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And so 
it depends where you sit. But NAFTA, I think, for the economy has has been good. Uh, but uh, it's you know. Ripping it up isn't going to change the trade deficit. Marty Feldstein's right. He he said it on Bloomberg TV. I'm sure he said it on Bloomberg Radio that you know the trade deficit's the difference between savings and investment. And and everybody talking about the the border tax uh, neglects the fact that we're going to get a big jump in the dollar and we could wind up with a Mexican debt crisis or an Asian debt crisis third time around. Maybe this is the Chinese debt crisis. Phil, I went into this interview thinking we might need to stage a little intervention with you. You have, uh, you've admittedly been obsessed with this border tax. Why have you been so concerned with it? What, what are you looking into? Well, I, I looked into it because I have clients who follow the, do the oil market. And in fact, people don't understand it. And so I have, you know, I just got onto it and then I just started following it. And people kept saying, well, keep going because nobody else is looking at it. I mean, we did the, the Brattle study in December. What's the impact on the consumer price? And, and that it was sponsored by Coke and, and the Coke, it, it actually works against, I think, the Coke industries, but best interest. But they, they are, they're worried about all the other implications. And, uh, I was, you know, I was the first person to start writing about it. And if nobody else writes about it, you know, in this business, what you try to do is kind of create a little, uh, economic advantage for yourself. Yeah, you say the, the ignorance regarding it should frighten everyone. What does is, what is the oil industry writ large not understand about this tax? What, what it's going to do is change the flow of products, one, so that Gulf Coast refiners are going to be supplying the East Coast, not U- European. Two, uh, everybody says, well, people will yeah, I want to export. The last year we had, a, or year before last, discussion on lifting the export ban. What hasn't been noticed is every independent producer is going to be paying no tax. Uh, Continental Resources spends more than it takes in. This we know independents have always done this. They take uh, they have essentially negative cash flow. That means they have zero taxes. So they're all going to be pushing to sell their crude to Valero or to other domestic producers. And so Valero, uh, which can take up to a million barrels a day of domestic low, uh, uh, sweet crude, will displace Canadian heavy crude, which costs more, and take as much of its uh, as light crude. But it won't be paying as much. It's going to, you know, the the, the uh, deduction of, uh, dep- uh, instead of depreciation of capital expenditures, is going to have a significant impact. However, if a company wants to buy a coker, say, from Europe, they won't be able to deduct the cost. Uh, so $3 billion for a coker? Well, sorry, you, you, no depreciation, nothing. You just have to uh, you take a write-off. It is going to change the way all the business plans. And I don't think anybody, you know, very few people have really played all the, uh, the uh, moves. It's, it's a chess game. And I keep getting feedback from companies saying, oh, we didn't think of that. What's the fair price of oil, then? Uh <laughs> Tom, you know there's no fair I've asked you that question 18 times over the years. I know, but the thing is, uh, there's all this buying. I mean, as I said, I call it the Trump put. So the producers and the speculators have all come in. If you remember the Greenspan put, as uh, 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 Robert Schiller explained, investors thought there was a guarantee that Greenspan would intervene in the Mm -hmm. financial markets to prevent stocks from going down. Uh, Now with the Trump administration, we'll either get an import fee or we'll get this border tax, which will hold up crude. And what is happening is all the independent producers seeing this are rushing well, to uh, expand drilling. What was it like, Phil Verliger, to teach up in Calgary? I mean, they had a Canadian boom in Calgary. Is the boom over? Did they throw you out because they couldn't pay you anymore? <laughs> no, it was a uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun, and I have friends up there. I just did a paper for the Canadian Petroleum Association on the impact of the tax. Um, there's, uh, I ran into a problem, and uh, you can't 
uh, if you under U.S. tax code, if you buy a house up there, you pay Canadian taxes, uh, pay worldwide taxes on your income. And so I was going to wind up paying a marginal tax rate on my my uh, professor salary of ninety percent. Well, so what I did is fly back and forth. You know, I mean, Denver. come on, stop, John Tucker. I mean, anybody can do that, right? Ninety <laughs> percent. Okay. Okay. So it was, yeah. And the Canadian tax structure is it was it was different, and you know, a corporation would have put me a, 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 a clue on that. The universities don't prepare their people quite as well, so we uh, compromised. And okay. but after three years. Uh, Contractor was up, well, and Len Waverman, my friend who then, was the dean of the business Phil, school. Phil, you should done. move to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> but Phil, I like it, Frank. California, Colorado is really nice. But, Phil, this is important. When we talk simplistically about tax reform and corporate tax reduction abroad, and all that money will come home, it's really quite a simplistic statement, isn't it? It's very simplistic, and that's the problem with doing any kind of taxes. You know, I worked for Mike Blumenthal in the, in the Carter Treasury, and I was the author with two other people of the crude oil windfall profit tax. And I haven't done a lot of taxes writing, but what you learn is you have to be think about all the possible implications. It is a three-dimensional chess game. It's not just a simple statement. Okay, all this cash is going to come home when we do this. And we did it, uh, I think, a few years ago. On corporate taxes, but it's uh, a corporate tax holiday. Any kind of tax adjustment uh, moves all sorts of things because companies have hundreds of lawyers and economists working out all the details. And if you suddenly just change the whole whole uh, spectrum, uh, it forces many radical changes, and and that's why this is it's quite worrisome. Let me ask you about uh, energy policy and from moving from tax policy to energy policy in specific. What has this administration said about its its direction that it's going in? Uh, you're going to have a new head of the Interior Department who uh, is from is from the, from the region, we could say. Do, right. do you have a clearer sense of what the policy is going forward? Well, yes. They're going to open up the federal lands for drilling. Uh, the Obama administration had imposed rules in terms of uh, uh, methane emissions. Uh, limited access to certain areas. They put the sage grouse on the uh, endangered, or tried to put the sage grouse on the endangered species list. They're going to undo as many of those as possible and try to open it up as much U.S. land as possible. Indians uh, here in Colorado, the Indians have much more trouble getting, selling, leasing their land for drilling because of, the, of the, all the hoops you have to jump through at the Interior Department than uh, neighboring uh, landowners. They're going to open those lands up so that there's going to be a lot more push to drill. Uh, I think at TVA they're going to push to use more coal, uh, but it, it, it's essentially the supply is going to go up. And you combine opening lands up in some of these areas. Yeah, you know, there's one area, when I started, there were 20 billion barrels of U.S. reserves. Uh, a few months ago, the uh, uh, USGS said there were 20 billion barrels in just one part of the Permian Basin. I mean, the, the, the rate at which we're able to penetrate these uh, reserves with new technology so that I think supply is just going to mushroom. And uh, four years from now, we're going to be looking at this. And the U.S. is, you know, it could be the case that the U.S. is going to have to be looking for buyers for its crude oil because it's going to have so much crude that uh, we won't be able to consume it all. It is, you know, the change is going to be quite dramatic. Give us your read on the state of technology in the energy sector today. We were talking with Jim Glassman at the top of the show about uh, the slowdowns and the layoffs we've seen in the energy sector over these last few years. Has that uh, impacted technological development in the energy sector? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think to the contrary, it's accelerated it. Uh, Moore's law applies to the finding of uh, finding oil, also to the renewables. Uh, think, uh, technology is uh, is changing at an increasing rate, so that I think the cost uh, of uh, Reistead is a firm in Norway that looks at cost of drilling, and they ha- they had shown it had fallen by ten percent. Excuse me over the uh, last several uh, years, and, uh, uh, years, and I think it's going to increase to 15 or 20 percent, so that costs of finding oil in the United States in many areas will, will drop down to $20 a, uh, a barrel or so, or maybe 15. Uh, and at the, the same time, the renewable technology costs are going to come down so that you know, for mo- most of my career, I've been looking at higher and higher energy costs. Uh, it is quite possible that uh, in 10 years we're going to be looking at oil being, in many parts of the world, less expensive and other forms of energy less expensive than water. Give us the uh, the OPEC update. I have to I have to ask here now that we're a few months out from those meetings in in Vienna. Uh, are, are the parties upholding their ends of the bargain, and and what effect is that having on energy here in the U.S.? They're they're upholding their bargain uh, ends of the bargain. Uh, the compliance seems to be about ninety five percent, so that's holding up prices right now. But I mean, this is their last gasp. I, I mean, th- they are the high cost producers, except for Saudi Arabia. You know, five years from now, Venezuela is going to be a just a uh, devastated state uh, because of the all these technological changes that are coming here. Argentina is starting to adopt them. Russia's got a lot of shale oil. Uh, the renewables are coming. The renewables are going, uh, accelerating in developing countries. So you know, the beep, Shell uh, Shell was probably pessimistic when they say oil demand is going to peak in 2025. I think it probably peaks a little earlier. The situation is just changing so rapidly. Phil, thank you so much. Particularly uh, those discussions on trade, NAFT, and the border tax as well. Mr. Verliger, thank uh, you very PK much. Verliger, when he's with us, we get reams of emails. Send me his note. We protect the copyright of our guests, including Notes at the Margin, (laughs) volume XXI, number six. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.